This is Thresholds, nonprofit, independent, and listener funded. You can support the show at thresholdpodcast.org. Welcome to Threshold. I'm Nick Mott. Amy's turning the reins over to me for this episode. Last time, Jim Williams talked about six major things we need to do by 2030 to keep global heating below 1.5 degrees Celsius. One of them is decarbonizing buildings, everything from big, fancy skyscrapers to single-family homes. And I've been thinking a lot about this particular pathway to fighting climate change because of something that happened last year. It was the balmy first day of summer in southwest Montana in a town called Livingston, population about 8,000. My partner Leah and I were seated in a very fancy office room full of leather-bound books. A stranger was guiding us through signing a slew of documents that would change our lives forever. We're going to start off with the settlement statement. We were buying our first home. Leah and I were excited. We both loved our house and the town. But I was also feeling the weight of this new stage in life. And then if we can just get you to sign and date that one, please. By the end of the signing, some of the documents started to sound straight up absurd. This is our agreement to be agreeable. This one's agreeing to agree. <laughs> agreeing to agree. <laughs> Where are your copies? Oh, wow. Thank you. Awesome. Congratulations. We own, we, this, we over homeowners now? We were. And we had a fat packet of papers to prove it. With that packet of papers, we weren't just responsible for the house. Suddenly, we were also accountable for all the stuff that comes with homeownership. Property taxes, mowing the lawn, and also a huge chunk of carbon emissions. The U.S. as a whole sent nearly 6 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere last year. That's a number so enormous, it's hard to conceptualize. If you piled up all the people and mammals and lizards and fish, all the animals alive on this planet, and weighed them on some kind of massive planetary scale, they would still weigh less than the amount of carbon we belched up into the atmosphere last year alone. About a fifth of that six billion tons of carbon came from our homes, as in how we heat them up, cool them down, and keep the lights on. My own little house, though, is a grain of sand in that huge pile. But I am now directly responsible for that grain of sand. So for this story, I'm focusing on that sand grain. I'm zooming in on myself, my home. Because eventually we'll all confront the climate crisis. And the place where we'll most personally feel its effects and grapple with how to respond is at home with our loved ones, where we let our messy, imperfect selves show. I can't decarbonize the entire economy on my own. But can I at least decarbonize my home? I'm going to take you with me as I try to answer that question in this episode. Along the way, I'm also going to grapple with something that everyone who cares about climate asks themselves at some point. How much does what I do in my own small home, in my own small life, even matter? The impact of your home on human health is huge. What we're talking about is replacing steam boilers and radiators in buildings with more advanced heat pumps. It's costly, it's disruptive, but we, we have to figure this out. I don't think we should be naive about sustainability optimism. That's why for me it's a journey. Nobody can unilaterally live in a low carbon society. You can't do it by yourself. Let me introduce you to our home. Livingston's about an hour north of Yellowstone National Park, perched just outside the rugged Absorca Mountains. 
Behind our creaky gate lies a creamy, yellow, one-story house with red trim built about a century ago. Somebody who's seeing it for the first time might call it quaint, which I think might be code for old, but in kind of a cute way. We love the house and it's very livable, but look anywhere and you can find something that needs taken care of. The gutters leak, the furnace makes a sound like a low-flying airplane overhead when it turns on, and just aesthetically, nearly every room could use a serious makeover. But Leah and I were interested in making changes with climate and emissions in mind, which is why I invited Chris Dorsey over to look at the place. Hey there, Chris. I'm Chris Dorsey. Hey, nice to meet you. Chris is the head of Montana State University's Weatherization Training Center, and he says that training center is kind of like high school shop class for grown-ups. You know, central to our mission is to give them skills they need in order to move us a little bit closer to sustainable housing for all. Weatherization means preparing a house for anything nature throws at it. Rain, wind, heat, cold. And weatherizing also keeps your appliances from running on overdrive, cutting down on both utility bills and emissions. Chris and I sit down at the dining room table, and I put him to the test. It's like, you know, pulling up to my house in this neighborhood here, as an example, like, what do you notice about what probably has to get done here? Just knowing, looking at it, seeing probably how old it is and <laughs> the shape it's in and all that. Like, what do you suspect would be the biggest bang for the buck or the stuff that needs to get done here? Okay, well, let's take that as an on-the-spot um, case study. You have already in this home the, the, the first and best indicator of a low imprint home life, which is size. The place is not big. I'm looking to my left and there's a wall 18 feet away. I'm looking to my right, there's a wall three feet away. I think the front and the back is only one room away in each direction. So he says my place is small, which is a compliment, I guess. So there's no amount of money you can spend on photovoltaic panels and, and smart home controls and expensive construction and build a 5,000 square foot, $2 million home and call it efficient. It does not exist. They're, they're, they're mutually exclusive terms. So in terms of impact per person, the best thing you can do is build yourself or find and, and buy or remodel a, a modest, a small, a simple home. The science backs this up. Studies show the more floor space you have, as in the bigger your house, the more energy it tends to use. So we've got one thing going for us. Our house is small. But Chris had a lot of ideas for things we could do to lower emissions from our home. When we bought the place, I was excited about giving the kitchen a big makeover. New countertops, cabinets, the works. But Chris said it's what's behind the ugly cabinets I wanted to get rid of that could make all the difference. The spots we don't normally go or pay any attention to, as in the insulation. The stuff that keeps hot air in in the winter and traps cool air in in the summer. Some of these fixes can be relatively small investments that go a long way towards making your house more efficient and set the stage for bigger upgrades down the road. Things like crawling around in the attic to spray foam into gaps that could leak air from the main house below, or blasting more insulation into the attic, or more insulation on the walls. Nobody sits around at a cocktail party and uh, brags about their insulation. It's, it's kind of a non-issue. It's a piece of hidden infrastructure, right? But it's that hidden stuff which really is most critical in how homes tend to operate. He said there's sort of two categories of changes we could be talking about tweaking what we already have so it uses less energy, or investing in new stuff, like fancy, efficient appliances, even things like solar panels. So in simple terms, make what we have use less carbon, or buy new stuff that uses less carbon, or both. He said those changes can make a real difference in quality of life, too. 
Studies over the last three decades or so suggest Americans spend on average 90% of their lives indoors. You know, when you first hear those numbers, it sounds crazy until you actually sort of calculate where you spent last week, and I bet a lot of it was probably right here. And since we spend that much time inside... The impact of your home on human health is huge. In fact, one recent study said the air in many homes is so toxic it would be illegal under federal law if it were outside. But there's no legislation like the Clean Air Act that applies inside your home. And for indoor air quality, natural gas, which often powers furnaces and stoves, is a particular source of trouble. Gas stoves especially can create air quality comparable to secondhand smoke. Kids are most at risk, and studies show a correlation between cooking with gas stoves and asthma. The same pollutants can make people more vulnerable to viruses, like the coronavirus, and have higher rates of respiratory illness and cardiovascular disease. Luckily, at our home, we've got an old electric stove. It's not necessarily all that efficient, but it is one step above natural gas. That doesn't necessarily mean we're off the hook in terms of indoor air quality, though. Among the hidden hazards would be the discussion about, you know, basements and crawl spaces. What the heck is down there, and do you really want to breathe that air? Do you really, really want to be a part of that biological community, which is in your basement or crawl space? So I think you and I are going to go to your basement and take a look and, 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 and address <laughs> some of these issues. Yeah. So there's a lot of options out there. Yeah. Let's, do you want to do that now? Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Here we go. Chris opens our cellar door, and we walk down the steps. We enter a small dark room with ceilings just low enough to need a hunch over. I think the entire crawl space was 18 inches high for the first 40 years of its life. So somebody had the guts oh. to dig this thing out. I crawled around down there a handful of times, but immediately Chris can read details of the house I'd never before noticed. And this house is built in two or three separate pieces. They took the former foundation, cut it out, put some bearing walls underneath it in order to push out the house and make it, you know, six feet wider on that side. So there's a lot of history down here. Fascinating. Yeah. It's a history that shows how the house has changed over time. A one-room shack built to house a railroad worker to what it is today. Chris turns his attention to what looks like an ancient, oversized filing cabinet in the corner of our crawl space, our furnace. About half of homes are heated with natural gas in the U.S., my included. Keeping houses warm is far and away the largest source of emissions from homes. And in our case... I don't know how many generations of spiders have lived and died in this thing. How often do you change your furnace filters? We can't find our furnace filter. That's a trick question then. Yeah. <laughs> Let's look for your furnace filters. Yeah. <laughs> we couldn't find it because the whole device had been seriously jerry-rigged to fit our house. There wasn't even a slot like in a normal furnace where a filter belongs. Our whole house had been kind of built that way. A little bit over time, making do with what already existed. But Chris wasn't deterred by that. I'm going to pop this cover off and take a look. That there's a sound for radio. That's just what I was thinking. <laughs> there's your furnace filter right there. Oh, yeah? Oh, not too hard to yeah, find. Not no, hard to find at all. No, it's laid down, and it is uh, completely, perfectly, utterly useless. So what this means is that uh, every bit of dirt and gradu that gets sucked into the return grills in your house comes down here and gets heated and harmlessly just pumped back upstairs for you to breathe and rebreathe. And oh, so, wonderful. The furnace was installed in the 1960s, so a new machine would be orders of magnitude more efficient. Chris also notices our water heater. It's electric rather than gas, which is a good thing, but also... It's hilariously oversized. I'm going to guess that the last contractor that was here uh, decided to upsell the owner of the house and sell him the biggest water heater he could, or maybe it's all he had on his truck that day. He said according to the label, 
that water heater alone probably burns up close to half our annual energy use. And it doesn't seem like there's all that much we can do about that particular inefficiency. The water heater's pretty new, so it seems like there's no way to justify changing it out. It's one of many things we're just kind of stuck with. Chris left us with a much better sense of what we could do to start decarbonizing, but figuring out how and when to make those changes and in what order was up to us. I wanted to put our little place in the bigger picture nationally and see if that could help isolate one or two things we might begin with. So I called Leah Stokes, professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Yes, there are two Leahs in this episode. One's my partner and the other is a professor. And in addition to her academic work, this Leah also hosts a podcast, advises a climate action nonprofit. And I don't know, I probably do 15 other things, but those are the main ones. <laughs> Leah was quick to answer how homes can fit in with the kind of massive national transition we need to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So when we think about the carbon emissions all across our economy, right, it can feel really complicated. There's all these sectors like agriculture and oil and gas and buildings and transportation and electricity. And it's like, wow, carbon pollution is everywhere. Carbon pollution is everywhere. It's in what we eat, how we get around, where we sleep, nearly every decision we make. That's why we have to think at the systems level to decarbonize everything. And Leah says the systems change we need can be boiled down to two things. Clean electricity plus electrification. You heard about this in our last episode. In Leah's eyes, electrification, meaning converting all the stuff that runs purely on natural gas and other fossil fuels into electric, is a major part of avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. In terms of houses, she means converting almost everything in our homes to run on electricity, especially the big draws like furnaces and hot water heaters. Right now, the grid we plug all that stuff into is pretty dirty. It varies based on where you're at in the country, but nationally our grid is about 60% fossil fuels. So she says at the same time that we're electrifying everything we can, we need to be quickly increasing the amount of renewable energy on our electric grid. And if we make all the changes we need, she says, It turns out that between clean electricity and electrification, we can cut carbon pollution by probably 75% economy-wide. So this is a huge pathway to solving the climate problem. It gets us three quarters of the way there. That 75% reduction is by 2050, compared to 2005 levels, according to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. That same report says that electrification alone could reduce emissions by about 40%. Homes are just one small segment of everything that needs to be electrified. But studies show that home electrification can make or break our climate goals overall. As in, without electrifying the places we eat and sleep, we may not be able to keep warming below 1.5 degrees. Leah is actually working on electrifying her own home right now, and she told me that spurred her to ask all kinds of questions about what she should replace and when she should do it. You know, I was curious, like, is it more efficient? Is it better from a climate perspective if I'm pulling electricity from the grid, which includes fossil gas versus burning fossil gas in my home? I get this concern, like, should I be converting everything to electric now, even when the grid's still so dirty? When we have such a long way to go? Here's what Leah said. Turns out, based on research from the Rocky Mountain Institute, that it makes sense to switch to electric appliances pretty much everywhere at this point in time. That research shows that converting everything in homes to run on electricity substantially reduces carbon emissions, even if those homes are connected to grids powered by fossil fuels. And in most cases, electrification leads to lower utility bills too. 
Leah mentioned a couple all-electric technologies that can be key here to replace their gas counterparts. Induction stoves, which use electricity and magnetism to get your food cooking, and heat pumps, which are kind of like air conditioners that also run in reverse, extracting heat from outside, condensing it, and bringing it inside. It's interesting to me to hear that you're, you know, trying to electrify your own home. When you're like thinking about it, do you wait till the end of life to replace stuff? Like, what do you replace first? How I, I'm also personally grappling with this. Like, we just bought a house and and we it's very old. Where do you start? Well, Rewiring America, which is this great organization that does a lot of thinking on this, they say you definitely want to do it at end of life. So when stuff's about to go out on its own, no point in getting rid of a brand new furnace or car just because you want new stuff. But when your old item has run its course, she says, replace it with electric when you can. I immediately thought of my own aging home and appliances. Our spider-filled furnace was more than 50 years old. New, efficient electric does definitely save you money. So if you're in that kind of situation, it's a, it's a no-brainer. You want to switch to electric appliances. Do not put in new gas. Every time I watch a home reno television show, which I do a fair amount, it's kind of like a mental break, and they put in a new gas stove, I'm just like, oh, my God. And they put, like, 20 burners in. I'm like, dude, man, like, no, <laughs> why? It's truly tragic. It's tragic because, at least here in America, there seems to be a kind of love affair with gas in the kitchen. And that love affair has been carefully engineered. In a survey conducted of professional chefs, most selected gas as their choice for superior cooking, and for many good reasons. Natural gas cooking provides even heat, precise temperature control, and instant on and off capability with just the turn of a dial. This promotional video wasn't made by a cooking show. It was created by a utilities provider in Kentucky, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania that wants to sell its customers more gas. Natural gas providers have worked aggressively with state legislatures to block legislation that would provide cleaner, electric-based building codes and have waged war on local electrification initiatives all over the country. That sort of lobbying is a real barrier to getting us where we need to be. One study suggests that we need to replace 80 million appliances in 50 million households over the next 10 years. So I thought, my house, with its ancient, ratty, ready-to-fail appliances, is also sort of an opportunity. I'm going to have to change things out anyway, and as I do, I can try to decarbonize and electrify every step of the way. But making those changes, it turned out, was much easier in theory than in practice. So I'm down in the crawl space. The leaves are changing color. It's fall. It's getting cooler outside. And we're soon going to have to be using our furnace. But we haven't figured out what we're going to do with it yet. Because it's so damn expensive. I figured a solid intermediate step to making a big decision about our furnace was MacGyvering in a new clean furnace filter, since the old one was laying there useless and covered in, as Chris Dorsey put it, spiders and gradue. Since our furnace had been installed in such a weird way, putting in a new filter meant getting down on my hands and knees, shoving my head into the belly of the gas-powered beast, folding the filter ever so carefully, and violently shoving it up roughly to where it belongs. It was not going great. This half a century old furnace had become the center of our home improvement woes. We had a slew of contractors look at it and each told us more or less the same thing. It's functional, but it's old. It could go out tomorrow or it could limp along for another decade. We could either wait for it to break, which could leave us shivering midwinter, 
Or we could be a little forward-looking and replace the thing. It's more than five decades old. Its useful life is over. And if we did replace it, I was all about the idea of electrifying. The furnace was our only draw of natural gas in the house, and I wanted to replace it with an electric heat pump, like Leah Stokes suggested. Heat pumps can dramatically reduce emissions from homes, and in addition to heating your house in the winter, they can cool it in the summer. For a long time, heat pumps made the most sense in moderate climates since they couldn't keep up with extreme cold, but nowadays they can run efficiently in sub-zero temps. Heat pumps are already pretty common all over Scandinavia, which is a pretty cold place in the winter. They're absolutely possible in Montana, but there's a gap between the possibility and the education and skills required to get them installed. When we told our local contractors we wanted a heat pump, they looked at us like we were a little nuts. This is Montana, they told us. It gets cold here. They can probably do it, they said, but it's going to cost us. A lot. They bid us numbers about twice as high as the cost of replacing our furnace with a brand new gas-powered device. Come on. Come on! There was no obvious way forward. And it was more than just that furnace. Since our house is so old and strapped together, we realized just about every task would be as frustrating as this one tiny furnace filter. One contractor put it bluntly. The way he sees it, anything we do is pretty much just polishing a turd. The thing is, we love our turd. It's a turd with a ton of potential. So I'm still going to polish away, like down in the crawl space with the furnace filter. Boom. You have a filter sort of covering you and it's clean. Whew. Staring at our furnace, I knew we still had to answer. What are we going to do with this thing in the long run? I felt a little like Ned Stark in Game of Thrones. I knew winter is coming, so we got to figure this out soon. This winter stuff is like super freaking me out because it's getting colder and we need to figure it out. So it's really, really getting to me right now. But I got that furnace filter to work, kind of. So small victories, woo! And I also felt adrift. I felt alone in this quest to make my house a little more climate friendly. Weatherization expert Chris Dorsey said Montana has woefully few incentives and helpful programs to assist folks like me with making the changes they need. So I was curious, what if I lived somewhere else? Say, a place totally unlike rural Montana? Would the ways I approach decarbonizing my home look different there? That's after the break. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Nick Mott. I've been telling you about my house in rural Montana and the frustrations of trying to decarbonize as much as I can. I wanted to find someone else who'd actually done some of the work I was thinking about in a totally different part of the country and see what I can learn from them about fixing up my own place. And that led me to Patrick and Simone Nicholas. They live on Long Island in New York, just past where the skyscrapers of the city give way to the suburbs. Come on in, make yourself comfortable. You can take your shoes off. Yeah. Well, no, you can take it off. Is it your first time in New York? It is actually my first time in New York, yeah. Well, I hope New Yorkers have made a good impression on you. So far, it really has. It's been a great, great couple of days. They wanted to make sure that impression stuck. When I got there, they'd just gotten back from the grocery store. They laid out a smorgasbord of sweets to snack on while we chatted in their dining room. While I stuffed myself with cookies, they told me about their home. They have a beautiful, single-family, split-level home that's about 50 years old. They moved in about 18 years ago. Changes were in the works since day one. 
we started with, you know, trying to get the house better insulated. We changed the windows. So little by little, we did things to improve the house so that we can reduce our usage of oil during the winter. Yes, oil. There's no natural gas available in their area, so the heat for their house is powered by fuel oil, which is distilled from petroleum. That used to be pretty common all across the country. These days, fuel oil heated houses are somewhat common in the Northeast, but they make up only a few percentage points of the housing stock overall. When we first got here, they were doing that. It was always a shocker because they would fill up the tank and, you know, they're charging you per gallon. And the tank would be like, you know, like 275 gallons. And by the time you finish, you owe them like, you know, five, six hundred dollars for the month. You know, I remember one time the, the bills at least eight hundred dollars in, in one month. And I guess like anything, you got to learn how to figure it out. That was Patrick Style. He's a problem solver. So when their oil tank sprung a leak a couple years ago, he and Simone took it as an opportunity to find new options to heat their house. Patrick's into tech stuff. He read some news articles about heat pumps and a company he found inspiring called Block Power. To me, it was kind of like a, a play on Black Power. It sounded like Black Power, but Block Power. They were able to offer some creative financing to make a heat pump more affordable for the Nicholases. Patrick, who's so into tech, was psyched. But Simone, not so much. I was not on board because I prefer more traditional methods. You know, your standard furnace situation. To her, heat pumps sounded untested and risky. But eventually, Simone caved. She figured, why not take a leap of faith? The two went for it. I told them about my own misadventures figuring this out from my place in Montana. They said they could relate. The heat pump thing seemed new for their contractors too. It took some time to get them on board and get the systems all figured out. But when I visited, the work was done. Their house was heated and cooled by heat pumps. They took me on a tour to show me the equipment. The heat pumps are big boxes outside their house, connected to relatively small white boxes inside that breathe out hot air in the winter and cool air in the summer. Some heat pumps take heat from the ground, but those are a little more expensive. These are air source heat pumps. It sounds kind of bonkers to me, but even on the coldest winter days, air has a certain amount of heat contained in it. This technology works by using refrigerant to absorb that warmth from the outside air, condensing it and moving that heat inside. The Nicholases took me into their crawl space to see the hidden part of their system. As you can see, the heat pump, the, the, the uh... Oh yeah, there's the... There's pipes for the heat pump, they're running, uh, coming through this wall here. Yep. We got one going, that's the one that we saw in the basement. And this goes out the other side of the wall. Instead of going through ducts, which heat and cool my house, and probably yours too, the heat pump system at the Nicholas's is connected by tiny pipes that snake through their crawl space, pushing the refrigerant that transfers the heat or cool air to and fro. That's, uh, that's pretty much it. Cool. It's, 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 I'm super nerdy about this stuff right now, so it's, it's very cool to see, actually. <laughs> but even though they put in a heat pump, their house is by no means totally carbon-free. They still rely on New York City's grid, which is exceptionally dirty. I was kind of amazed to learn that New York State actually has two grids. Upstate is nearly 90% carbon-free. But there's currently no way to transmit all that clean energy to the city, so there, where the Nicholases live, the grid is about 85% fossil fuels. The Nicholases are thinking about where their energy comes from. They're contemplating getting solar panels down the road, but they do still have oil as a backup. They told me though, they're comfortable living with that imperfection. And it's just, you know, I think important for 
made to do whatever little I can to help contribute. And if everybody feels that way, then hopefully we can delay the, the flooding or the, you know, the ice caps melting and, you know, so that we don't have to all move to higher ground. <laughs> For Patrick, the decision to go down the heat pump road wasn't initially all that much about the climate. It was a financial decision. He said he was happy to make these kinds of investments in his house, but if natural gas had been available in their area, their decision might have been different. And when Patrick reflects on his own journey to make the change to a heat pump and what might help others swap out appliances in their own homes too, he says two things are critical. Making the technology affordable and having information about how this technology works. In order for heat pumps to become any sort of a new normal in homes across the country, he said government and groups like utility providers need to step up to make this transition easier. So I think the system has to help as well. It has to be more accessible. That has to be the direction that we're going in. Spending time with the Nicholases, I realized even if we were both to create the decarbonized, energy-efficient homes of our dreams, solar arrays gleaming in the sun, heat pumps breathing comfortable air into our insulated, weatherized homes, we're just two families with a very small impact. But while I was in New York, I spent a lot of time walking around the city, doing the tourist things, just taking the place in. I wandered around Times Square. I got mildly lost on the subway. I took the ferry to Wall Street. And nearly the whole time, I was looking up. One thing that struck me was the sheer scale of this place. It feels like I'm in a canyon here, but the walls are made of buildings and not like rock and cliffs and, and natural stuff like a regular canyon. And I felt a sort of awe or wonder at what humans are capable of creating. Any one house, mine, the Nicholas's, seemed so small compared to everything around me. If you want to tackle climate change in single-family homes, you by definition have to address it singly, one by one. But tens of millions of people live in multifamily residences. In fact, 60% of the, of the space, of the floor area, is residential. We have very large multifamily residential buildings in New York. It's actually the large multifamily buildings that are the majority of our space. That's John Mandyke. He's CEO of an organization called Urban Green Council. They focus on decarbonizing buildings in New York City. The city has about eight times as many people as the whole state of Montana. Because it's so big and dense and so many New Yorkers rely on public transportation, burning fossil fuels for heat and hot water is the city's largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. And John's organization helped shape a law that's an attempt to turn a one-by-one -one approach to greening buildings on its head. It's called Local Law 97. We try to use scale for our advantage in New York. Local Law 97 is the centerpiece of a suite of bills, all passed by New York's City Council in 2019, tackling climate change in the city. It places a carbon cap, or limit on the amount of carbon a building can emit, on buildings over 25,000 square feet. So only the biggest buildings in the city. That cap starts in 2024 and gets stricter over time. If buildings go over that cap, if they emit too much carbon, they're hit with huge fines. So those fines are meant to force building owners to do the work it takes to make their buildings more efficient and sustainable. What we're talking about is replacing steam boilers and radiators in buildings with more advanced heat pumps. We have to do it. It's complicated in the sense that it's costly, it's disruptive, but we, we have to figure this out. The logic goes, fixing up the buildings is cheaper than shelling out the cash to cover those fines. 
With Local Law 97 in effect, if you're living in any of those giant buildings, whether you own your own apartment or you're a renter, those big sources of carbon could just go away. It doesn't matter if you believe in climate change. It doesn't matter if you want cheaper utility bills. You don't have to find a friendly contractor who wants to help you polish your turd of a house and put in a heat pump. If you're one person living in one of those big buildings, this stuff will just happen because the owners of those buildings are mandated to do the work. And because of the size of the city, the sheer amount of floor space getting heated and cooled and lit up in those big buildings, John says that if Local Law 97 goes according to plan, over the next few decades... The law will deliver the largest carbon reduction of any city in the world. I flew back to Montana and started settling into my own place. The weather was cooling down and the antique furnace started kicking on. I was feeling guilt about that flight and about a bunch of other stuff too. I drive way too much. I get plastic bags at the grocery store when I forget totes. Sometimes I eat meat from factory farms and fruit and veggies trucked in from halfway around the world. But also, I try to do my part. We have a garden. Most of the meat we eat at home is hunted by Leah or on occasion fished by me. I only shower once or twice a week, but to be honest, that's really more about me being me and not about conserving energy or anything. Point is, I was still wondering, what's my role in bringing about meaningful climate action? Just about everyone I talked with for this story had something to say about this. Like Leah Stokes, political science professor at UC Santa Barbara. I take plastic takeout, I still feel shitty about it sometimes. <laughs> Me too. She was able to contextualize just how one person's actions might fit in with the bigger picture in a way I found really helpful. You know, I know that that decision in that moment is way less impactful than my decision to work on federal climate policy like 24-7 for six months straight. And so, you know, we just have to forgive ourselves for being imperfect beings and notice that these litmus tests of perfection that none of us will ever pass are ways of splitting the movement, are ways of reducing our power, and we have to reject that framing. Leah says the daily decisions we make, the options available to us, are shaped by bigger forces. Namely, in large part, by the economic system we're in and the industries and interests that system caters to. And the individual can only do so much within that system. Nobody can unilaterally live in a low-carbon society. You can't do it by yourself. To get where we need to go, we need systems change. And some people and companies are very much opposed to that. In particular, oil companies. Those companies have spent billions lobbying against climate action. But another tactic of theirs is less overt. They've pushed to shift the blame for climate change towards our individual daily habits. As an example of that, Leah said to look at the company BP, which created the idea of a carbon footprint. You've probably heard of this. I remember calculating mine, which was super high back in high school. That's a figure that points to how much carbon you, as an individual, emit in your daily life. Let me be clear, there is value in looking at emissions in this small personal scale. But focusing on your individual footprint suggests that only individuals, and not government or policy or industry, are responsible for getting us out of the climate crisis. And that shift, away from the structure and towards the individual, it matters. If it's just us, as in individuals, that got us here, then it's not up to industry or government to get us out. It's up to hundreds of millions of single human beings and their daily choices. This, Leah says, is the wrong way to conceptualize climate action. 
if we buy into the message that there's nothing we can do, that it's all about our individual behavior change, that we're small atomistic people who just live by ourselves and, and it's all about the individual, then we can't make the biggest impact possible and we can't fight the systems of oppression. American society and culture celebrate the individual over the collective. And what I hear from Leah is that pushing back against climate change requires challenging those ideas. Finding a future requires finding it together. Leah suggests one clear way forward. You want to actually look for structural change even on the individual level. She says focus on just a small number of really important decisions. Decisions that make a huge impact. And something like swapping out appliances in your home is a structural change, even though it's an individual change. She said, take changing out an old furnace with a heat pump as an example. You do that once, and all your heating needs are electrified for decades. If you sell the house, those decisions live on for the next homeowner, too. Taking these one-time, bigger changes that live beyond you, those are really important actions. Part of the answer, Leah says, is yes. Take individual actions where you can. But don't stop there. Look bigger. To your neighborhood, your city, your state. Connect with others. Don't just focus on yourself. The tension between individual action and deep systemic change doesn't have to be either or. It doesn't have to be a tension at all. It can be both and. The deeper question is, how do individual actions have the highest impact in the bigger context? We have to think of ourselves as more powerful, that we have to believe we can change institutions and policies and structures in society, whether that's at the local city council or at the Congress. And if we believe in that power, if we work with others through organizations, through collective movements, we can be more powerful. The more we can work together with others, the bigger changes we can get, the more structural change that we can get. And climate change is ultimately a structural problem. So to return to my little place in Montana, when we bought this house and I started digging into how to decarbonize or at least reduce my impact here, the information I was able to unearth seemed overwhelming. I didn't know where to start and I felt lost at sea, alone. As I'm finishing up this episode, winter's almost over and we've still only made some really small upgrades. Some new windows, sealing up the attic, we have a quote on a heat pump that might work, but it's a lot of money and we're hesitating to take the plunge. So that old, inefficient natural gas furnace is blasting this very moment. I've since gotten some good advice, but it's hard to know what to do and when. I'm still overwhelmed and there are lots of things I haven't even broached yet, like solar and energy storage. But I've also been talking with people all over the country about this stuff experts and contractors, and also regular folks, friends, co-workers, outright strangers. People caught up in the same confusion and indecision that I am, but people dedicated to figuring it out. I can't say my house is a lot more efficient or that I'm personally a lot less frustrated, but I do feel a lot less alone. Next time on Threshold, Reporter Shala Lawal visits two communities in Nigeria that are dealing with climate change in very different ways. It's raining like crazy today in Lagos, and everywhere is flooded. 
This episode of Threshold was produced and reported by me, Nick Ma, with help from Amy Martin and Erica Janik. The music is by Todd Sikafus. The rest of the Threshold team is Casey Simpson, Deneen Weiske, Eva Kalea, Sam Moore, and Shalala Wall. Our intern is Emery Veyu. Thanks to Sarah Sneath, Sally Dang, Maggie Contreras, Hannah Carey, Dan Carino, Luca Borghese, Julia Berry, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, Caroline Kurtz, and Gabby Piamate. Special thanks to Danelle Baird, Elizabeth Jean-Pierre, Catherine Janda, Joanne Wong, Shamim Graf, and Rebecca Morris.